Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, this is Cited. I'm Sam Fenn. And I'm Josh. Yeah, Josh. Josh GD, um, one of our producers, on the show on mic for the first time ever. Yeah, happy, happy to be here. Yeah, Kid Radio. Kid Radio, that's it. <laughs> are you are you excited to be on air? I'm I'm happy to be here because it's a it's a good story. So yeah, so this is a story that you've worked on for a while, right? What what are we doing today? Yeah, so I've I've been researching this story for a bit. Um, it's in partnership with the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions, that's here in in, uh, in Vancouver, um, and there's another partner too. Yeah, we are also working with Descent Magazine and their cool podcast, Hot and Bothered. And we actually, uh, it's, it's a little impolite not to say hi, we have, a, we have one of their hosts uh, here with us as well, Kate Aronoff. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad we can make this happen. So what, what is Hot and Bothered? So Hot and Bothered is a podcast hosted by Descent Magazine, which is a long-running socialist magazine here in the States. And we like to call ourselves a podcast about climate politics for the 99%. So what that means for us is that we like to think about things like uh, parts per million of uh, carbon in the atmosphere and all the sort of nerdy things like greenhouse gases uh, and how that relates to wanting to build a world where workers have rights, where we all can live sort of healthy, dignified lives lives and trying to fit those pieces together in a way that a lot of either leftist or climate folks uh, tend not to. Do you think this this conversation that you're trying to develop on the show it, like wh- where do you think it's at in the US right now? It's do do most kind of um, people who have left-leaning political economy um, politics uh, have they have they kind of worked out a way to harmonize that with with um with a radical environmentalism is it is it a challenge still definitely a challenge i mean the way that climate politics tends to get talked about on the left specifically is it's one of many many things that people on the left care about you know you have these sort of list of issues that are important and and people you know wouldn't say that they're not important but that don't always get top billing uh, when people are crafting campaigns necessarily so our hope is to, to really integrate, I think, at, at a basic level, sort of integrate an understanding of ecology and, and climate into political economy more broadly and not seeing it as this sort of separate issue, but as something which is really crucial to understanding how uh, the economy, how politics operates uh, in, in, you know, the Anthropocene, the Capitalocene, whatever you want to call it. All right, let's, uh, let's get to the story. And can you tell us your name? Uh, I'd rather not. Prefer to be anonymous. Are you from Germany? No, I'm not. And have you been a part of this blockade, this occupation? Uh, yeah, I have stayed here for uh, a couple of months. So to start the show today, uh, I'm playing a clip I saw on Democracy Now! this week. And the host of that show, Amy Goodman, she went to Hambach coal mine, which is the largest open pit coal mine in Europe. It's in Germany, right? Yeah, it's in Germany. And this mine is responsible for a massive amount of emissions. When I hear, I, um, I find meaning in the work here. I learn a lot about uh, repression, oppression and climate change. Amy Goodman is uh, standing in, in this kind of forest area interviewing a young woman with uh, curly hair and a, and a nice warm-looking toque on. 
And this woman is a is one of a number of activists who live in a little village of tree houses in the forest. Um, these people are are Josh. They're really committed activists. You know, they they live in the forest without any running water. Uh, they dumpster dive for their food, uh, and they're basically what they're trying to do is get in the way of the coal miners. Um, to, to sort of protect the environment. So like hardcore environmentalists. Yeah, the people doing the, the work the rest of us don't want to do, really. I'm not just fighting against lignite mining, but I'm fighting against exploitation in general. And that means fighting against capitalism. And that means fighting against domination. And that's why I see this as one struggle. Have you ever spoken to any of the workers at the pit? Yes, we do have contact with them, for example, with the workers' unions. And what do they think? Um, they want to keep their working places. Um, actually, for me, it's really hard to, to do this discussion because um, for me, it's actually a racist discussion because we talk about 20 to 30,000 working places in Germany where people might lose their jobs. But we're also talking about people in the global south already dying from climate change and there are thousands of them dying every day. So I don't want... I don't want to talk about people losing their jobs because of lignite mining. So what this activist is talking about, that's going to be the focal point of our whole show today. The conflict between, on the one hand, extraction workers who are principally concerned about their families and their livelihood, And on the other hand, environmentalists who are thinking, you know, longer term, uh, thinking about the the viability of the planet and thinking about the way climate change has these really horrible outcomes um, that hit people in an unfair and unequal way. Yeah, and I mean, I think we've been kind of taught uh, that maybe this conflict is inevitable. Yeah. Um, And and maybe it is. but it seems like it's also foreclosing a lot of solidarity between workers and environmentalists. Right. So today on the show, we have a political parable, really, about one activist from the Pacific Northwest in the 1980s and her struggle to create a kind of workers' environmentalism. What everybody has been asking me for the last two days, how do you organize timber workers? How do you organize loggers? How do you get loggers to talk to earth firsters? So the voice that you're hearing right now belongs to an important environmental activist named Judy Berry. And the first answer is you have to like loggers. That's, that's the first thing. And I already did because, you know, I, having been a blue-collar worker the, my whole adult life, the conditions of my life are actually more similar to them than to the privileged environmentalists in the city, the espresso-sucking pavement dwellers, as we call them. <laughs> but so being from a rural area myself and being a working-class person myself, I can relate for those reasons. Judy has a labor organizing background. She was a shop steward at the retail clerks union and then the American Postal Workers Union. And in the late 80s, she's working in construction in Northern California. Every day, she sees something that disturbs her. If you were living in that area and you saw the number of trucks going by with huge logs on them, you know, the big ones, that there's only maybe three big logs on a truck, they're taking out these 20, you know, foot with trees, 
and you're seeing that day after day and the volume just way more than you've ever seen, you know something wrong is happening. This is Mary Liz Thompson. She's a filmmaker and she produced a great documentary about Judy Berry. Thompson says that like around this time in the mid-1980s, this huge financial company called Maxam, under this investor from Texas um, named Charles Hurwitz, buy up a, a ton of the old-growth redwood trees in the Pacific Northwest. And the thing about Maxam is that they have pretty bad debt at this point. So Charles Hurwitz had invested in these junk bonds, and uh, he was in pretty bad debt. Mm. So coming to Northern California, um, it was pretty clear that he was going to just like liquidate this forest. So just cut everything down. Clear cut the whole thing. Yeah, in order to kind of settle these debts. To them, it was just standing cash. And they wanted it gone as fast as possible. And so that sort of change in mentality from the, you know, the Pacific lumber, which had been, you know, run differently before that, that, that kind of escalation is, is really the kind of thing that we face all around the planet right now with just our use of resources and just the, the, the growth and, you know, whether it's timber or, or anything else. When I think about extraction, I, I, by my own admission, tend to think about oil and coal and natural gas and think a little bit less about things like lumber and, and, and trees. But it's just the same story. I mean, it's wild. Like, and, and we've talked about this a lot on the show is that when you sort of, when Wall Street involves itself in, in any of these things, which are destructive on their own right, but uh, create this sort of evil special sauce of uh, financiers plus uh, oil magnates, you know, it just it just spirals sort of out of control. Yeah, so that's what things look like basically on the ground in 1988. And Judy becomes obsessed with this problem that these companies are going to rip down all these trees. And so she decides that she's going to join a group of activists called Earth First. And that is our political approach. It's one of monkey wrenching, of thwarting it, a political Aikido of taking the energy of the mad machine and turning it against itself. So that is a a short clip of Dave Foreman, one of the founders of Earth First, uh, speaking in Mary Liz Thompson's documentary. Right. That's Earth First with an exclamation point after it. Like, Earth First. Yeah. And Judy really stuck out here, I think, because, I mean, it was really like a male-dominated group, uh, also very white. More than that, she just had a different kind of point of view than than most of the people who subscribe to this philosophy that we call deep ecology or or sometimes biocentrism. Generally speaking, the environmental movement uh, at the time was set up as a as a single issue movement. This is Dr. John Balami Foster. He's a sociologist at the University of Oregon, and he's also the author of a paper about Judy Berry called. The Limits of Environmentalism Without Class. So the uh, attitude was, well, we stand for nature, we stand for the environment, and we're not going to deal with uh, social issues or class issues. For example, Dave Dave Foreman, who was um, co-founder of Earth First, and he was a deep ecologist, uh, he made a statement where he said, uh, one of my biggest complaints about the workers up in the Pacific Northwest is that most of them aren't class conscious. 
Uh, well, I mean, he was talking about class consciousness there, but he was turning it around. He says, that's a big problem. The loggers are victims of an unjust economic system. Yes, but that, would, that should not absolve them from everything they do. Indeed, sometimes it is the hardy swain, the sturdy yeoman from the bumpkin proletariat, so celebrated in wobbly lore, who holds the most violent and destructive attitudes towards the natural world. So that you know, they went out of their way sometimes to to um, antagonize uh, the workers, and of course, um, the workers sometimes uh, went out of their way to an antagonize uh, uh, the environmentalists. Okay, so he's saying that there's this antagonism between the two groups. Do you? So what did it actually look like on the ground, you know, this antagonism? Sometimes it would come to blows between workers and environmentalists. Really? Yeah, and the environmentalists also did this thing called tree spiking, uh, which is when you put a spike into a tree, like a metal spike. You just kind of uh, nail it in. You get it in there, and then uh, let's say when the tree goes through the mill, um, it can hit the saw, and the oh. blade can go flying. And so, yeah, that's dangerous. It's yeah, it would it would it could really hurt people. It could really hurt the workers. The caveat here, though, is that the environmentalists don't actually do tree spiking all that much. Uh, when they do do it, they usually like put a notice on the tree and kind of let um, the workers know about it in advance. They kind of give them a heads up. Sure, but I can imagine, you know, if you're trying to build solidarity with people being really cavalier with their safety is probably not the best look. Yeah, it's not it's not a really good look for the environmentalists at all. And so the other thing that I've heard about is this uh, situation with the spotted owl. Right, yeah, the, this cute owl. Right. So not only is it a cute owl, but it's, um, it's an endangered species. And the environmentalists think of it as kind of being an indicator species. If the owl's doing poorly, then the forest is doing poorly. Yeah. Um, and because it becomes a kind of a symbol for the environmentalists, some of the workers use this as an opportunity to uh, basically try to hurt their feelings. And the way they would do it is they would kill an owl. Jesus. Um, usually not a spotted owl, because those, those are hard to get your hands on. They're endangered. But they would just, you know, they would get these dead owls or kill an owl and then nail them into a sign as a kind of a symbol of their antipathy for the environmentalists. So is that is that the northern spotted owl that we're hearing right now? Um, it definitely is uh, some owls that you know <laughs> I, I, I found the clip on the internet. I can't say for sure it's northern spotted owls. Right. Okay. But still, I would say majestic sounding creatures. I can hear them. So this fighting between the environmentalists and the workers, Judy really wants to kind of get past it, and in fact, she sees the things that she's fighting for on the ground um, and that environmentalists are fighting for as really being part of the same kind of struggle as the things that the workers are fighting for. At the same time, the corporations were, were in conflict with the forest workers over uh, automation and uh, they were downsizing uh, the number of workers in the industry. So there were a lot of strikes going on 
The important thing here, basically, is that workers are really suffering at this point. Um, like, they're receiving huge benefit and wage cuts. Um, one company tries to cut their wages by 25% in Northern California while they're outsourcing jobs. Um, it's a really difficult period. And uh, the big question was to what extent the workers might side with the environmentalists um, or whether the forest workers would inevitably uh, side with the corporations. So another thing that Balami Foster tells me is that this idea that the, that the companies had to kind of clear-cut the forests it, it makes sense for their bottom line, but it doesn't necessarily make sense for their workers. Yeah, if you're working in these forests um, and you're clear-cutting, it's not particularly sustainable. Uh, it's not going to be like a long-term steady job because you're just kind of treating it as this extraction. Right, you're going to cut all the trees down and then, then what do you do? Right, so for the workers, um, what is really beneficial is a kind of forest management. Uh, when you're doing stuff that's a little bit more sustainable, um, a little bit less about the clear-cutting. Right. And, you know, it just so happens that that's also what the environmentalists wanted to see. They wanted to see these forests preserved. You know, they, it's not that they wanted all logging to stop. They just wanted it. They wanted um, these, these forests to survive. Instead of telling the timber workers to, what to do, which is the other mistake environmentalists always make, I asked them. And I asked them to tell me about their working conditions and their lives. And the way I would meet them, by the way, is we blockade them. And, you know, here they are, and we're chained to their truck. They're not going anywhere. And, um, <laughs> and that actually is really how I started meeting timber workers. And, you know, they're kind of curious about these people who are audacious enough to actually hike into the middle of nowhere in the woods and put their bodies on the line. So um, as I began to hear their stories, and I didn't even do this consciously, I began to give them a forum. I think she wasn't so dogmatic, you know. She was. She understood that people worked in the forest because they loved being there. And a lot of them cared very much about the trees and, and didn't want to see it completely destroyed. Okay, so what specific stuff does Judy do differently than other environmentalists at this time? Okay, well, one example is in 1989, there was this chemical spill at a sawmill in Fort Bragg, California. Right. Um, and these workers are injured in this chemical spill. The company was trying to avoid paying for their recovery. Um, so Judy helps organize them into the International Workers of the World's uh, local number one. So she unionizes them. Yeah, and ultimately they win this lawsuit against their employers and uh, they get some money. There's a great scene in Mary Liz's documentary... Um, and we'll play a clip from it now, where you get to hear Judy Berry talking to workers directly. So just imagine uh, environmentalists, you know, some of them have guitars, and they're standing in the road blocking a truck, and there are loggers who are kind of leaning against that truck listening to Judy talk. When you all worked for Palco, then nobody was ever out here protesting because Palco was cutting them slower than they were growing back, and that's just fine. But Maxam comes out here try to liquidate the old growth to finance their junk bonds. I'm sorry, that just doesn't make it. And that's why we're here. We're not here because of the loggers. 
We're here because of Charles Hurwitz, some slime bitter from Texas, who's never seen a redwood in his life, makes $4 million a year. That is 10 times what the average mill worker will make in a lifetime. Wow, what an amazing, what an amazing clap. I mean, just that whole, that whole idea that, that it's not, it's, it's not that, you know, environmentalists want to go after people's livelihoods and their jobs. It is, it is, you know, the, the guys at the top who are making all this money. I mean, just listening through that, it sounds, you know, could, could be a line from Bernie Sanders or something like that. It could be a line from, you know, someone uh, at Occupy Wall Street. Um, it's just the same, you know, the same thing because it, because it really works. I think that's the kind of, kind of language that really gets people motivated. So let's let's leave the activists for a second and talk about things more at the kind of governmental level. Mm-hmm. So at this time there is a plan to save the spotted owl and the government has projected that if this plan was implemented it would mean cutting about half of the forestry jobs in the region. And so obviously it's extremely unpopular, this idea. But there's something else that the government knows, but that it's not talking about. Right, Josh? Yeah, the Forest Service had worked on this way to save almost all of these jobs uh, and still kind of make sure that the owl was protected. There was even a, a, um, a secret report that was put out within the government that was suppressed, but DeFazio gave a copy to me at the time. Foster is talking about Peter DeFazio. He's the U.S. representative for Oregon's 4th Congressional District. So the report you're talking about uh, was from May of 1990, I believe, um, a report by the Forest Service. Yeah, and it was suppressed, um, but it had all sorts of ideas, and um, I got a copy of it, but it never went public. One of, one of the ideas, it seems, was that, yes, there was going to be less cutting, and so there was going to be some job losses, but those could be offset with an $86 million public works project. So basically, this idea that, um, that there could be retraining, there could be, there could be other work made for the, to, for the workers to offset um, any kind of losses. Yeah, exactly. There were plans for a kind of a New Deal approach to the forest that would protect the workers and protect the forest. But all of this was against the interests of capital, and the Bush administration rejected it. But the Clinton administration ended up rejecting it as well, which was the real defeat. My God, I had no idea about any of that. Uh, as someone who pays attention to the intersection of climate and, and big expansionary fiscal po- or, yeah, fiscal policy. It's it's so it's sort of incredible, right? Because it's one thing if it's like activists or or journalists, uh, left wing journalists like you and me, like coming up with wild ideas. But the idea right, that right. there's like a government report where it's like, here's how we'd actually do it. It's so f- funny. I mean, maybe funny isn't isn't the right word for it, but this kind of thing comes up again and again, where you have you know not not leftists, not even particularly progressive people just looking at looking at sort of the reality of, of, of stuff going on in the world, um, whether it's, you know, issues facing facing the forests or climate change more generally, and, and finding these like solutions that sound very radical, but but in, in reality, it just are just pretty common sense. Right. So hot and bothered listeners won't know this. But you know, we've been making documentaries um, about academics for like, 
almost six years now. And something that's become a real trope, like a cliche on a sided documentary, is there's always a well-meaning technocrat who sits there and figures out how to fix the world and then is shocked when the politicians do the exact opposite thing <laughs> that they figured out. And and the the people who work on these projects, they tend to just like, uh, maybe it's just like a, ne- a necessity of, of d- put, pouring all this labor into like figuring out how to, how to do something challenging, like transition your forest economy. But, but they never seem to be able to quite grasp that like the smartest guys in the room or the smartest women in the room are not going to be the ones who get to make the decision about it. The politics is, is about something else. If you listen to Governor Clinton and Ozone Man, if you listen to them... This is George H.W. Bush. He's on the campaign trail in 1992. And when he says Ozone Man, he's referring to the vice presidential nominee, Al Gore. You know why I call him Ozone Man? This guy is so far off in the environmental extreme, we'll be up to our neck in owls and out of work for every American. This guy's crazy. He is way out, far out, man. My God, up to our neck in owls. It's like the <laughs> taco truck on every corner of yeah. the 2000 election. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because like we think, of, you know, the way we talk about Donald Trump in the U.S. is that he's so abhorrent. He's so sort of outside of the norm of, of U.S. politics. And, and Bush just sounds like Trump here. He sounds exactly like Trump the way he talks about the environment. It's just the same narrative, the same talking points that uh, workers, you know, are, are are instinctually opposed to any sort of environmental regulation and it's just total nonsense. I mean, wow. Yeah. And I know I know that John Bellamy Foster, he calls this the job blackmail. And the basic idea is that workers are presented with, you know, one choice. You can either be for the owls or you can be for your job. And Bush, you know, in particular, was really dedicated to reinforcing this dichotomy. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to poke fun at just because the line sounds so absurd. Uh, but it's real. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's a very, very good, very compelling framing. It's, it's asking, do you care more about this owl, this non-speaking creature, or do you care about, you know, my family being able to put food on the table? You think you're going to save General Motors by slapping more regulation on them? Less regulation, less taxes. Bring that back. Okay, let's get back to Judy Berry here. Um, 1990, she starts her plan for the most ambitious action yet that she's um, staged. It's the Redwood Summer. And this is this is modeled off of the Mississippi summer, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a campaign started in 1990 to bring students from around the country to participate in nonviolent civil disobedience in Mendocino County and Humboldt County. That's in California. The goal basically is to target these three big companies, uh, the three biggest, really. It's Louisiana Pacific, Georgia Pacific and Maxam Pacific Lumber, who we talked about before. And the reason why um, the activists feel a sense of urgency is there's this pending ballot proposition. And if it passes, it will impose new restrictions on logging operations on all non-federal lands. um, And it will have this kind of massive impact 
on the for-profit logging in California. Judy is really concerned that during the summer before the vote, that the timber companies are going to try to just clear-cut everything they can, you know, before perhaps they're not allowed to anymore. And so Redwood Summer is a way to bring all these college kids together and literally just slow them down. You know, these are these really were the last of the Redwoods going down. And there was something about that that I think just resonated with people because, you know, they're the oldest, the largest trees. They're only in this place. They, It's this amazing, incredible forest that's just going to be gone. And, you know, I, I, I think that especially... For some people, that just holds uh, almost kind of mythical symbolism. You know, if you could really kill the the largest forest in the world, the largest trees in the world, what who could do that? You know. So as Judy and the activists are planning Redwood Summer, the tensions between environmentalists and workers are only getting more and more severe on the ground. Judy has sent, like, so many threats that she actually has this file folder she calls threats and fakes. Uh, one of them is a newspaper clipping, uh, a picture of her where she's standing with her fiddle, and somebody had sent her this clipping uh, with crosshairs over the face. Like a sniper, like a sniper scope crosshair sort of thing. And she'd been sent it anonymously. And this wasn't rare at all, these kind of death threats. And the reason why the folder is called Threats and Fakes is because the other thing that was happening at this time is that somebody was releasing fake press releases pretending that they were coming from Earth First. And these press releases would say lines like, we will resort to violence against loggers if necessary. And, you know, it just seemed like a pretty blatant attempt to sow divisions between these groups that Judy was working hard to try to bring together. Things really reached this boiling point uh, one day when Judy's in her car with her two kids and she's uh, hit from behind uh, this truck rear-ends her and, like, doesn't even slow down. Uh, when Judy gets out of the car, she realizes that she had barricaded that same truck and the logger uh, the day before. And she tells reporters she thinks it's an attempted murder. The amount of antagonism that this has engendered among potential allies among the timber workers is not worth the few trees that may have been saved by it. In April of 1990, Judy holds a press conference where she says that the Northern California contingent of Earth First will no longer spike trees. So this is the statement that we have agreed to. In response to the concerns of loggers and mill workers, Northern California Earth First organizers are renouncing the tactic of tree spiking in our area. A car bomb explosion sends two members of the Earth First group to the hospital. Good evening, everyone. This pipe bomb so what happens on, on May 24th of 1990? So I'm working at a, a video production facility in San Francisco, and we have cameras and editing equipment there, and I get a call that there's, you know, Judy and Daryl, we're in a 
in a car bomb and I, I'll never forget it. I, it just was chilling kind of, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. So here's what happened. Judy and Daryl were driving to a concert that they were going to perform at UC Santa Cruz and they were following a friend in the car in front of them. And when they pull up to an intersection, this massive pipe bomb detonates right under Judy's seat. They're driving a Subaru, and it's blown out and sent 100 feet down the road. Uh, ends up stopping in front of a high school. The explosion is really, really loud, and this thick smoke covers the whole block. So obviously Judy is, is horribly injured by the blast, almost killed, frankly. And her wounds are so bad that she ends up being hospitalized and, and missing the whole Redwood summer campaign. But more than that, you know, to add insult to injury, the FBI and the Oakland Police Department, they initially consider Daryl and Judy suspects in the bombing. They, um, they say that this was their bomb and that they were planning to use it for some sort of eco-terrorism purpose. This idea now has been totally discredited. The Oakland Police Department and the FBI never formally brought the charges in court. And, uh, and Judy and Daryl successfully sued the FBI for over $4 million for pursuing the charges in the first place. To this day, there's a lot of speculation about what actually happened with this bombing. If you want to dive into it, dive into the case, uh, Mary Liz's documentary, Who Bombed Judy Berry, is a really good overview of everything that happened. Why, why were they bombed? I would say the main reason why they were bombed is because they were so effective. And because they were getting loggers on their side and because they were getting so much national press and the the timber industry and really just, you know, wanted to bring them down. Now, how exactly and who the bomber was, we really still don't know. How do you think the bombing changed um, the the situation on the ground in terms of the activism in the Pacific Northwest? It changed it in a lot of ways because it made it scarier and it made people paranoid because really you, you, you're always looking over your shoulder. Is it going to happen again? We don't know who did it. Are we infiltrated? Who, you know, all those things. And it, it really, that was rough. That was really rough on people. You know, how do you handle that? How do you kind of figure out who, who's okay to talk to. And people got too paranoid sometimes probably, but also, you know, how can you blame them? In the end, the Redwood Summer activists are able to save thousands of acres of old growth trees but they ultimately lose that important proposition vote. So there's no systemic change in California. You know, I, it's, uh, it's still invaluable what they were able to save, but you know, we're, they're still working on trying to get the salmon runs back in those areas and things like that really start affecting the whole life cycle and the whole ecology of systems and you can't deny that there's been a huge impact. Judy Berry died of breast cancer on March 2nd, 1997. She was only 47 years old at the time.
the on the ground uh, movement to protect the forests was was pushed way back um, by the rise of this wise use movement, where basically workers, small business people, and corporations became allied against the environmental movement. And uh, I think that that was a loss. Um, you know, this is the whole problem with uh, the politics in the United States now, where a uh, certain part of the working class is being thrown in, is being pushed in a reactionary direction because they lack other allies. I am thrilled to be back in the very, very beautiful state of West Virginia. And I am proud to stand before you and celebrate the hardworking people who are the absolute backbone of America. Thank you. I love the people of this state. I love your grit, your spirit, and I love our coal miners, and they're coming back strong. I made you a promise during the campaign. You all remember, many of you were here. As president, we are putting our coal miners back to work. hard to to contradict what what Trump is saying. I mean, you know, it's it's not hard to see that he's treating workers like props. He'll go to a rally and put on his hard hat and and stand in front of a bunch of coal miners and and then proceed to cut every social benefit that helps people in Appalachia and other places where extraction happens uh, and, 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 you know, stocks his cabinet full of Goldman Sachs executives and, and the very people who, you know, have historically screwed people in, in, in mining communities over for generations. Being able to, to, to you know, articulate that I think is, is really important and, and to articulate again just what, what, how that can be better, you know, how the world can be better um, if we really take take the problem of climate change seriously, but at the same time, um, you know, wealth inequality and, and, and the way our, our economy is, is structured more generally, which, you know, has a lot more things wrong with it than the fact that it runs off of fossil fuels. So, Kate, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This is so fun. Yeah, I, I love this. Thanks so much for having me. And, and I want to thank the hot and bothered listeners for indulging a, a weird new format uh, for an episode. Um, you know, like I'll make the pitch. If you if you subscribe to Cited, you'll get lots of stories about the environment and about the political economy. Um, it's. I think that there's like a kindred spirit between these shows, which is why we wanted to work with you, Kate. And um, and hope and, you know we're gonna do more stuff together in the future. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and and if by weird you mean uh, highly well produced and curated, then, then sure it's weird. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to Cited. I'm Josh G.D. After the break, Sam talks with Herb Hammond, an independent forester who tells us a story of BC's War in the Woods. Back in one minute. Cited Podcast is a documentary radio show about how big ideas change ordinary life in North America. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes to never miss an episode, like this one, The Heroin Clinic. Can you remember the first time that you actually, like, walked into the clinic and got heroin that taxpayers paid for? Yeah, it was great, because you're thinking, hmm, well, I can take any amount of heroin they're going to give me, I'm going to take it. They sit there and say, look, don't worry about the dope, we've got more than you can do. Um, but then not much longer. That very morning. Threw us right out in the cold, basically. Three months is up, winged you down, here's your last day, see you later. You got an overdose. Big breath, hey, come on, buddy. The Heroin Clinic, available right now for free. Go to sightedpodcast.com and subscribe to Sighted on iTunes. Careful, careful, watch his head. Welcome back to a special joint broadcast of Cited and Hot and Bothered. In the second part of the show, we talk to Herb Hammond. Herb is an activist and an independent forester from British Columbia. He works with community forests and First Nation groups to practice what he calls ecosystem-based conservation planning. Herb called Sam from his home on Vancouver Island. One thing that I'd like you to explain, but um, you're going to have to do it like uh, like you're talking to a five-year-old because I know nothing, like my science is is very poor and I think a number of the listeners as well, is can you can you spell out, because obviously there, there is a climate change component to this too. So can you, can you explain to me why forests are important for climate mitigation? Well, uh, uh I'll do it in two ways. Okay. Let, let me just let me just explain the the, the process of storing carbon. Uh, the way carbon gets stored in any ecosystem uh, is through photosynthesis, and that's where you combine carbon dioxide and water and sunlight with chlorophyll in green plants, and that process, uh, that side of the equation, uh, then releases oxygen which we need, obviously, into the air, and takes the carbon from the carbon dioxide and stores it in the bodies of the plants. So think about a blade of grass and how much carbon it stores versus a tree that's 40 meters tall and has all kinds of green leaves on it. So does that make sense to you? So there's, there's, more, there's more carbon stored in the, tr- in the old tree. And, exactly. And in fact... Because of that, our intact, natural, old, and those are important words, intact, natural, old forests are our best terrestrial carbon sink. They store the most amount of carbon. There's a new study out in the U.S. that shows that because of that uh, reality, that logging in the, the forests in the United States releases more carbon than all the other domestic and commercial sources put together. Uh, That also probably reveals to you the strength of the forestry lobby in that country and likewise in this country and around the world. So 
if we were really serious about climate change, uh, we would drastically change how we relate to forests. For each moment that we wait, uh, we're losing options. And uh, if anything makes me sad as a grandfather when I look at my grandsons, is that answering the question, achieving what you just laid out for me, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, would have been much, much easier than it is today. And it's, it's not a linear loss of options. It's an exponential loss of options that's, that's happening right now. So I want to put an underscore on the urgency to get on with change. In the 1990s, activists in British Columbia took part in what is now known as the War in the Woods. That was a sustained protest over corporations' plans to clear large sections of old-growth forest on Vancouver Island. Indigenous activists and environmentalists came together to stage massive blockades. And in 1993, things came to a head when more than 800 protesters were arrested in one summer. Well, the war in the woods, in some ways, in my opinion, has really never ended. I'll come back to that in a minute. But the, the war in the woods, quite simply, was that we had the strongest special interest group, namely timber companies, uh, dictating what happens in public forests. And there needs to be an emphasis on public there because Canada t- touts and British Columbia touts its large amount, over 90% of our forests is public forest land. Uh, and, but there was no balance in what happened on that forest land. It was, it was all driven by timber interests and what timber interests decided were values that needed to be emphasized or de-emphasized. Along with that, there was a strong movement towards local control of decision-making uh, during that period. And that, uh, that local control was also uh, trumped by timber companies that were owned outside of local areas making decisions about people's backyards. That resulted in a lot of pressure on government. It was a lot, First Nations were actively involved in, in various forms of protest from nonviolent direct action to critiquing uh, plans from a technical and cultural standpoint. So let's say I'm the CEO of a gigantic uh, timber corporation. What can can you explain to me why, economically speaking, I would want to to clear cut? Um, like like how did how, why did that make sense from their perspective? Well, it, it's it, it, from their perspective. The, there's two parts to that. There are two parts to that answer. From their perspective, it was the cheapest way to get the log on the truck and deliver it to the mill. That uh, they designed machinery. And, and technology that you didn't want to fuss with trying to protect half the trees. That requires a little slower, uh, it first of all requires much more uh, artistic falling, people taking the care they need to so they don't damage the residual trees or the trees they cut. Oh, right, because you don't want the tree to fall into you or a tree that you don't want to fall over. That's right, exactly. And and so, so that it it's not that it's it, that it's hard to do, but it takes a little bit more time and a little bit more finesse uh, in, Which, in in doing it. 
Which would cost more money. Which would cost more money. And so you would have fewer logs on the truck at the end of the day. And the other thing was that in good partial cutting leaves behind most of the best trees because you want to maintain a high quality, you want to maintain the biological diversity in the ecosystem. And you also, from a long-term forestry perspective, want to meter out those large high-value trees over long periods of time. It, by doing that, you uh, you store the value on the stump, as it were, and you also maintain ecological functions, uh, conserve water, store more carbon, uh, and so we get lots of societal benefits while we get employment and a reasonable profit out of it. But you can, in a forest like that, you can come back to it year after year uh, for centuries and have high-quality wood. What the timber companies wanted, though, was they wanted all that high-quality wood now because it made it could make people wealthy, and the people that had power wanted that. That was the goal. So, if you could log it fast and log all of that high-quality wood, that was what people wanted to do. So, one of the you know, I've been reading a lot lately about Judy Berry and some of some of her work, and I'm wondering kind of what form the activism took what what did you guys do well probably the best way is to give you the anecdote of where i live uh we uh, uh my wife and i and a handful of others started a group called the sulcan valley watershed alliance and it it was uh, the purpose of the group was really simple that that we were not opposed to logging in the watersheds of the sulcan river and the sulcan valley but uh, that needed to be done in ways that put water quality, quantity, and timing of flow as the first priority. And there needed to be an understanding that because of that, sometimes the answer to to can we log here will be no. We, we did uh, our own analyses uh, and presented them to the government. We uh, got very uh, good training in nonviolent direct action, stood on roads. Uh, but each time we stood on those roads, we had a solution. We could say, this is what needs to be done. Uh, and it was one of the things that was very amazing about that particular group is that it had mill workers, it had loggers, it had machine operators, as well as environmentalists and shopkeepers as part of the group. So that resulted ultimately in uh, us developing our first ecosystem-based conservation plan uh, for the Slocan River watershed. And it was, uh, so, so my activism spanned from being a, a, using my science to develop plans that protected ecosystems and local people's jobs to standing on the road to make the point that what was going on wasn't either good uh, ecology, good ecology, or good economics. So I've read that I've read that this was the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Mm-hmm. Is that it, it was? It was. And well, and what? Well, go ahead. The the Hasty Creek blockade is what you're what you're referring to. Yes. And 
and that was the largest. I, I think that shortly after that, there was one in Harrop Proctor that at least local lore said had a few more people than that, but it was it's good enough for me to call it the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Um, it was, uh, and it was very broadly based. That was the thing that I think always uh, sticks with me. It it was not a narrow uh, section of society. It was pretty hard to to write people off as a single interest. In fact, it was much easier to say. Uh, here's the broad range of interests that are saying no to the strong special interest of timber companies. Were you there for that blockade? Yes, I was there for the blockade. And then when when the uh, <laughs> when the arrest happened, uh, when the arrests happened, I wasn't there because I was in Vancouver w- uh, doing some negotiations with the chief forester of British Columbia at that time on behalf of a First Nation that I worked with. And it's kind of a funny story because we had uh, some very skilled people that set up a phone line. They spliced into a uh, a, a BC Tel uh, at that time line uh, near the blockade. And they told me they would phone me if I could give them a number when the arrests were happening. And because they knew I would be with the chief forester. And so I was at a lawyer's office who I worked with, and he liked the idea. So when the arrests happened, uh, they uh, they phoned me, and uh, we uh, put them on speakerphone and let the chief forester listen to what was going on. So the chief forester could hear the people being arrested in the background on the phone? Yes, yes. And we should say it was an enormous number of people who were arrested. Yes. One of the powers of what was going on in that part of the War of the Woods was the fact that there were local groups, and they were not dominated by by provincial, national, international, environmental groups. And it 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 created not only did it create a diversity uh, and groups that really understood the issues from all sides, from being an employee to doing the job to the theoretical side of it, to the cultural side of it, but it, it also produced a, a power, a political power, that was impossible to ignore. The, the last thing I want to know about the ancient history is, is kind of how successful you were at convincing the actual forestry workers um, of your of your arguments. Were, would you say that, would you say that the, the labor, the, the, the working class people who worked for these huge companies, did they, did they mostly buy the argument of the activists and the, the indigenous people, or, or did they mostly buy the argument of their, of their employers? Well, I think they mostly buyed, bought the, the arguments and the options that were put forth by local groups and indigenous people. And I can, I can give you a couple of, uh, of, uh, examples to support that. Well, I could give you many examples. I had lots and lots of uh, of phone calls and letters from from loggers uh, who heard me on TV or who were part of uh, of uh, debates in in public that I was involved in support what I was doing. I got many brown envelopes of here's some information that uh, you should know about because I appreciate what you're doing and you're right, and so keep doing it. Uh, 
large companies rule by intimidation, and they also rule by a very clever connection with unions because, uh, regrettably, unions have gotten into the trap that what's good for the company is good for them. And so some of those things mask how workers feel. So, and that I could, I could tell you, like, the reason we had sawmill workers and loggers in the Watershed Alliance was because it made sense to them. We did an Angus Reid poll uh, uh, relating to the, the ecosystem-based plan that we did for the Sulcan Valley, which called for reducing the cut here by 90%, uh, but showed how we could replace uh, all of the jobs with different kinds of forestry, value-added wood products manufacturing, and tourism. It was, by many people's thoughts, a kind of a radical idea. And then they did their polls. And I remember the person who worked for them saying to me, you know, before I tell you the results, I'm going to tell you that this blew our socks off. We were pretty amazed. And between 75 and 90% of the people uh, questioned supported the findings of that plan. And that's an incredibly diverse population here. Uh, Certainly by no means (laughs) that percentage of environmentally conscious or focused people. What people in the quiet of their homes and when they're free from uh, being intimidated and worried about what a boss might think of them, uh, they were able to speak their mind, and I think they did. Well, Herb, I want to thank you so much for all of your time and for being on the show today. You're welcome. I, I, I've enjoyed it. It's a, a big topic. <laughs> and we're going to leave it there. You can find links to all of our guest work at citedpodcast.com. If you want to send us some feedback, you can shoot us an email at cited.podcast at ubc.ca. We podcast the show every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes to make sure you get to hear it. While you're there, rate and review the show to help us get more people to listen to it. Share it on Facebook and Twitter, and you can also follow us at Cited Podcast. Shout out to our listeners on Terrestrial Radio, CITR in Vancouver, CIVL in Abbotsford, CGSF in Burnaby, CKDU in Halifax, and WVBR in Ithaca, New York. If you live somewhere else, tell your local campus or community station they can have the show for free. Thank you to the Social Science and Humanities Research Council for funding our show. And thank you, as always, to the world-class Michael Smith Laboratories, home to 250 researchers and one podcast. Special thanks this week to our partners at Descent Magazine, Hot and Bothered, and the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. Today's show was written and produced by Josh G.D., Gordon Kadic, Alexander Kim, Kate Aronoff, Colin Kinneberg, and myself, Sam Fenn. We're back next week with another episode with Hot and Bothered. Thanks for listening.